Imagine beautiful poems that never end, books that are written for you specifically as you read them, strangers collaborating to create nuanced stories with thrilling plots. These marvels, along with many other startling manifestations of electronic literature, may revolutionize how we think about reading and writing. Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like linguistics, technology, game and object design, and ethics. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Mark Marino and Leonardo Flores, both with the Electronic Literature Organization. Leonardo Flores is chair of the English department at Appalachian State University. Author and critic Mark Marino recently published Critical Code Studies at MIT Press and produces crowdsourced literature with Meanwhile NetProv Studios. Thank you both so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you here to talk about your work. And I guess we have to start with what is electronic literature? Is it like digital humanities where nobody can answer the question? Or is there sort of a standard definition? We have answers for sure. I'm Leo Flores, and I'm going to talk a little bit about my minimalist definition. We've been writing on pages, laying ink on paper for thousands of years. We've been developing print technologies for hundreds of years, and we have all kinds of technologies that allow us to do the writing, whether it's on a virtual page, that will result in a, in a printed page. But since the invention of computing, people have been interested in exploring what writing looks like when you are doing things with computers or computer-like devices that are unique to that medium. Electronic literature is literature written in conversation with digital media technologies. That means things like computation, text generation, multimedia integration, interactivity, network data network collaboration, and things like that. And so more and more, people are writing on screens, on touchscreen devices, on digital media, and they're sharing this work that can only really be experienced in screens in many of cases. Well, I think... President Flores, president of the Electronic Literature Organization. That, that, that was a fantastic definition. This is Mark Marino speaking now. I love Leo's definition. Obviously, I agree wholeheartedly. I'd throw in a couple of dimensions to it. The one thing that we tend to emphasize is this notion of that the works are digitally born. So they could not have been made without this digital dimension. So they can end up in print a great example, this wonderful work by Aaron Reed called Subcutanean. And this is a book that is print on demand, but the versions of it differ depending on which random seed you have. And so lines of the book are different in different editions. Now, people can have the same different edition, but there are different ones that are generated. And again, it's all computational how this is made. So it's a print book, but it couldn't exist without this digital process. It used to be you're sitting next to somebody on the plane. What do you do? I study and make electronic literature. Oh, hey, look. Well, that's good. I have an e-book right here on my e-reader. 
And you say, well, okay, well, I guess that is an electronic piece of literature in a sense. That's not quite what we're talking about just yet. And probably because there's a little tiny dimension that we don't always make explicit is that often, although not as a prerequisite, there's a sense that the artistry comes in the way that you play with and experiment with the digital form. I hate to self-promote, but in Bunk Magazine, this humor magazine that I co-ran in the late 90s and into the 2000s, we decided to have an issue called the Los Wickedest Timespedia. <laughs> and, and we just imagined that you take the entire LA Times and make it all wiki format and just invite everybody to write whatever they want to write. So we had micro articles. Someone's reporting their child soccer game. We had someone reporting the graffiti that showed up on their fence. Then we would have like Scott Retberg, who is the co-founder of the Electronic Literature Organization, who's in Norway. He wrote as a character named Lars, who would report about things like skiing conditions or this beautiful article, which is, I cannot remember the difference between my Facebook friends and my real friends. But again, some artistic intention in the way that you're using the digital medium is maybe a prerequisite for this genre. What are some other examples of what you think of as electronic literature where that artistic intent is very different than what we would have seen in the previous 5,000 years of narrative literature? The thing is, it's a paradigm shift. So for instance, the idea of characters, right? We've had characters forever. And these characters, when you read about them, all you read is basically a record of what they have done. And then we can think about what their motivations are. We can think about why they did or said what they did. But one of the earliest forms of electronic literature is the chatterbot. In 1964, Joseph Weizenbaum at MIT and team put together this chatbot. And the idea is that people can interact with it. It had these different scripts. The most famous one was called Eliza after the Pygmalion play, right? Eliza Doolittle. And so people would use teletype and interact with this. And the idea was it was trying to pass the Turing test to see if people thought they were having an actual conversation with a person. Part of what was successful about this script in particular is that Eliza was patterned after a Rogerian psychologist. A what psychologist? Rogerian. You're like Carl Rogers. Yeah, it's a very sort of listening approach and kind of reinforcing what people have said. Definitely reflective. Yeah. Why do you say you have a problem? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right, right, right. exactly. <laughs> there it is, exactly. And so the program would draw from the conversation that you would have if you mentioned your father down the line. It would say, tell me more about your father, right? And it's like, <gasps> she's listening. And people would get all excited. But notice what we're doing here is we're reinventing the character and the bot is a character. One of the things that people realize is here you have a character that comes to life, that the behaviors are scripted, that has certain motivations. And so as we start developing characters, say for chatbots or say for phone answering machines or for bots like Alexa and smart speakers and all of these things, or video game, NPC, kind of non-player character interactions, you have these personalities. You are creating characters. The desire may not always be literary, 
it has its practical applications, as we have discovered a lot of late, but still. And that is the seed for a tradition that has found a new life in social media networks like Twitter, where there's a number of writers, myself included. Mark, have you made Twitter bots? Oh, I've made too many Twitter bots. <laughs> yes. Uh, I know you've got some great ones, Leo. Probably my most successful one is a bot that generates the synopses of plots of Hallmark holiday movies. Oh, yeah, that's a favorite of mine. It is brilliant. You know, again, that was one that came out of a lot of time spent at home with my dear mother, who really loves those films, and realizing that perhaps they followed a little bit of a formula, which could be celebrated in Twitter bot fashion. Here the bot is generating plots in a genre that we're very familiar with. But one of the things that bots do is that they have accounts, they have profiles. Some of them really foreground personality and are interactive. It's just to show you the idea of the paradigm shift that is possible. And we're just talking about character and characterization, which is one of many, many, many aspects of the literary that digital literature or electronic literature explores. So you follow Eliza, you know, on into the future, and the next bot generates one of the first computer-generated, or at least the content for one of the first computer-generated novels, The Policeman's Beard. But then take it into the early 2000s, and you've got these two wonderful artists, Andrew Stern and Michael Matias, and they make this amazing piece called Facade. So this is a video game you're playing with these two-dimensional characters, but you kind of move it around it. It's the three-dimensional space of their apartment. And these are your friends from 10 years ago from college. They got married. And you're about to have the worst evening with them that you could imagine. So it's loosely inspired by Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And uh, Tripp and Grace are about to just have the row of the century. And you are in the middle of it. And you can say one sentence at a time to them. You can type freely whatever you want to say to them. And they basically play you off of each other. And they compete for your attention and your sympathy. Here we have people who are self-consciously drawing from previous literary forms, and then they're using the tools at their disposal. Now, one thing that may be hard to see, the Twitter bots, in how many of them are made, we use some tools for this. There's a platform called Cheap Bots Done Quick that uses the Tracery platform. There's also a wonderful one that's built out of Google Spreadsheets by a fellow named Zach Whalen. But basically, they're pulling words out of bins, and they're putting them into patterns. And that practice is as old as the Dadaists. That practice is as old as the Surrealists. How is what you're talking about, though, different than, like, a role-playing game? Sometimes it's not. You know, in the branch of electronic literature, the branch of NetProf, which we think of as uh, networked online collaborative storytelling. This is something that my writing partner, Rob Wittig, and I have been working to develop over the past 10 years or so. A lot of it is setting up collaborative writing games that can happen over digital media. And we don't tend to develop our own platforms. We see ourselves as cuckoo birds who lay our eggs in other birds' nests. But the idea is that, that we're building these structured writing games, again, building on the practices of the Ulipo and the Situationists and the Surrealists, but they could be also based on parlor games, traditional parlor games, that can be played over digital platforms. But usually there's, there is a digital dimension that's a little bit uncommon. So I'll give you an example. We did one a few years ago 
We want to do something with climate change, but our current generation of young people, Generation Z, is so traumatized by climate change, right? I mean, it really causes them a kind of, sends them into depression in a way that probably it should, but it was awful, right? And so we play these games often with young people, with my students, with his students, and with whoever wants to play out there. So this was co-developed with Samara Haley Steele, who's a wonderful LARP live-action role-play developer, and a climatologist from the University of Washington named Dargan Frierson who had this wonderful piece of software that could map out the future of weather, however many years into the future, given certain carbon conditions. So taking all this into account, we said, okay, let's find out the weather 50 years from now, and let's have five locations. So we had Florida, Argentina, India, Bangkok, and we said, why don't we let people imagine what it would be like to attend a destination wedding there 50 years in the future? And this piece of software does not just predict the climate 50 years in the future. It predicts the weather on specific days and locations. We had a JavaScript generator that made family relationships. It gave a bunch of roles, just randomly generating these between two families. They were always sort of like Hatfield and McCoys or Capulets and Montagues, whatever. They had some sort of like opposition to each other. And you would pick these rules that were matched with little adjectives that helped you. And then you would write your way through eight beats of the wedding from arriving to the cold feet moment to the day of the wedding, etc. Collectively imagining how this weather information, because you got a weather report along with your welcome packet, was going to impact your experience. It is absolutely collaborative role play, but it's got this like little tiny computational element that we wouldn't have access to. It's sort of what you were saying, Leo, like the weather itself becomes a primary character in this narrative. We said the wedding was the ultimate wedding crasher. You know, one of my favorite net probs that Mark and, and Rob Wittig led was called the One Star Reviews Net Prob, in which people would go to products on Amazon, wherever. It was a prompt that really got people to tell stories about these one star review items whether it was an item or anything that could be rated. And, oh, there were such beautiful rambling narratives. What we're doing is a kind of artistic graffiti on the web. And without all these digital networks, this just doesn't happen. It's really taking advantage of that potential of these spaces. And the wonderful thing is, just imagine you're out, you're looking for whatever it is, product, and there's this one product, you know, you see how people have responded to this product and you get all the typical mundane stuff, some of which I'm sure is rather entertaining, right? Especially when you get to the one star review thing. But then you stumble upon this little bit of art, this little story, this your day is perhaps transformed by it. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Like people will find the banana slicer and it'll be like these hilarious reviews that people would just sort of collectively decide to do on these. We actually had this staged as a, a Reddit board that was an imaginary community that found value in things that other people had rated one star. Real or fictional was the other thing just to throw out there. Not all these were real items. So this is one realm of digital literature. Another realm that Leo also has plenty of experience in is the realm of generated literature that goes the other direction, like poetry generators. Just to give an example, you know, there's a wonderful poetry generator called Taroko Gorge, created by Nick Montfort, inspired by Taroko Gorge National Park. That's this beautiful piece of natural poetry, right? One of the oldest things we've ever written poetry about, but it produces poetry endlessly. 
in little stanzas that are recognizable as poetry. And this little generator has been recreated by countless digital artists who have reskinned it to make it first Tokyo Garage, then Gorge, right? And they said they have a different theme each time. So maybe it's going to be cultural detritus. You know, maybe it's going to be food or maybe it's going to be Fred and George. There's a Harry Potter themed one, right? And they all have different variations. In some ways, they all continuously generate poetry. In other ways, they generate more generators. That's the creative act. Or some of Nick's generators in the hands of Lillian Yvonne Bertram take on the issues of police violence, take on the slogans of Black Lives Matter campaigns. Sometimes I think electronic literature can look like formalist experimentation gone crazy that wishes it had venture capital. But I think you find digital artists who are wrestling with the same social, political, emotional issues that all artists wrestle with. Taroko Gorge really is kind of a little native e-poetic form. You know, the sonnet or the haiku or the villanelle, right? These are kind of poetic forms that have certain constraints. And when you take this engine that is very good at exploring rather obsessively what happens with recombining elements of a limited set of things. Let's say you're hiking through a canyon and you see flows and rocks and pools and trees and you hike for half an hour what do you see rocks and falls and flows and and it's all the same limited number of elements so it lends itself well to things like eating endless consumption or dating or at a club or sex in some of these cases x number of body parts can combine in many interesting and and provocative ways right and so on it's a really neat kind of uh, exposition. It just shows what literary form might look like in the future. Literary artistry may be, for some people, the creation not of content, but of processes. And that's the big thing. So it's the soloit idea, but it's also the Olipo idea. And again, it's also the idea behind Neprov because we create prompts but is creating processes and constraints that produce things that resonate with people. Mark, Leo, thank you so much for being with us today to talk about electronic literature in all its varied forms. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And if you would like more information about Mark and Leo's work, you can visit eliterature.org. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council, produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum.